You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I'd love to invite you to open up to uh, uh, First Peter if you have a Bible uh, or a screen in front of you. And uh, we are always trying to make our way through uh, whole books of the Bible, left to right, and just see what the scriptures would say. Um, there's something to that that... Um, the word is living and active, and it's continually speaking to each of us in its own way. And, um, and so we do take break, breaks briefly to look at different topics here at the church, but it's just been so cool to see even, for example, the kickoff a series like this about exiles, about the persecuted church, about suffering, and all of a sudden, you know, the teacher appears when the student's ready, and he opens up the heart, you know? He speaks the word, and then he turns the soil, and now all of a sudden, where maybe we thought that a message about persecution or suffering or something would be irrelevant, it's now incredibly pertinent, and I think... Uh, Lord, help us and, and to open up our eyes and our ears to hear what you're saying beyond just, you know, normal text. Um, I, uh, I want to um, uh, confess kind of openly to you that I'm a, I'm a city boy that wishes he was more country than he is. I was from uh, New York for the first 10 years of my life and then Indiana, which is kind of country, but not, I don't feel like I've experienced more country here in the South than I have uh, in my first 20 years of life. And so, um, I fired my very first gun, you'd be proud to know. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I fired my first gun like last year uh, at, in this guy Freddie's house uh, of all places. He actually had this gun, which felt like it was a toy. I feel like I saw, you know, Elmer Fudd shooting rifles and I felt like I was supposed to pick up some steel, but these things are like two ounces now. And I feel like uh, I need to respect it more, at least in my mind. And there's like an infrared on it that was so clear that you could literally shoot that black box back there and it wouldn't have to worry about taking Jimmy's head off back there, just shooting the black box just with accuracy and precision. And so I don't know if that's mainly enough for you guys, but it was mainly for me. Um, I, uh, I drove my first motorboat, my first speedboat for the first time last year. And so I was just kind of getting into it. I drove the pontoon boat too, if that counts. Um, but uh, I ripped that thing so fast. Um, I flipped my kids on the tube 280 degrees with this thing. I was going so fast and I like even burned a hole in the little, I don't know what it is, some kind of a motor. That's my next bucket list is to learn the parts of motors for, for the record is to try and get back to the roots and get back to nature and, and do manly things. Um, it was like last fall, um, I just, it's that midlife crisis thing. It's like, there's, you can't say no because you're tired. Tired's not an excuse anymore. That's kind of my rule of thumb now. So I'm like, we're going. And so I said, we're going to go uh, down hiking with uh, the two boys. And so I'll get some pictures there. I'd called every spot um, in Greenville, South Carolina and Paris Mountain and North Carolina, all these couple places. And uh, there they are, Alec and Leo. I apologize. I should have warned you guys ahead of time. This is like my thing. I owe them Starbucks every time I, I put their picture up there and tell stories. And so um, I remember, like, you guys should know this, that when you try and get camping, um, uh, camping reservations anytime in South Carolina in October, if you pick up the phone, they'll just laugh at you because it's like, you do, you, what are you, did you just have to become a dad? Are you a total idiot? You can't just start camping in the middle of October. You have to, like, plan that stuff out six months ago. And so anyways... Um, how about that, though? Isn't it just worth it when you just, like, decide? It took about 45 minutes a trip to Aldi, got a bunch of uh, peanut butter cups, and went down there and cooked hobo sandwiches, and it was a fantastic time. And I told a bunch of jokes that we don't tell when mom's around and that kind of a thing, and it was, uh, it was a really, really great time, and I'm just trying to recommend to you just let's do it, guys. I mean, that's my message. Let's do it. You got kids, or if you don't, just let's, let's get out of here. Let's go to the woods. It's an hour away, but a world apart. When you get there, everything's quiet. The phone reception doesn't even work, which is fantastic. And all the problems and the stresses begin to fade away. It's just 60 minutes, but you get out there and everything's quieter. And then the, the sun goes down 
And the dark is darker than any other time before because there's light pollution. And now all of a sudden it's just completely dark and it's completely quiet. And you can hear noises you don't usually hear and you're thinking thoughts you don't usually think. And all the things on your stupid little phone seem so small and insignificant when you're out there. It's just 60 minutes away, but it's a world apart. And you lay back on the grass. Have you been here before? And you look up at the sky. And all you see is this beautiful and terrifying thing all at the same time. You know, the Milky Way and uh, the O'Brien this and that and the different constellations. There's a million stars I read about that you can see to the naked eye that are just not even a tip of the iceberg of all the stars that are up there. And each of them are brighter than the sun, which is kind of crazy to think about. And so you just look out on, the, on, the, on, that, on that horizon. And you've got your back to the, to the grass and your eyes at the sky. And, and, and what do you feel out there but wonder and awe and a little bit of fear? When you're looking at the sky and the phone's in your pocket and the lights are diminished and the noise has gone down and the clutter has kind of subsided to a sub, sort of a peace, all you're left with is wonder and awe. And you, you don't want to talk. You want your words to be few in moments like that. It's not the time to make plans when you're looking at the sky. It's not the time to worry about stuff. It's not the time to try and tell the universe what you're going to command it to do. It's a time to be small. It's a time to be quiet. It's a time to finally shut up and realize you're not the center of things. Like you go out there and you realize that little barbershop and the stop sign and all the cars, it's all designed to revolve around us. And the phone, it's, it's all consumer products, so it places exactly what we want the minute that we want it, and it tricks us into thinking that we're the center of the thing and all of my problems are the biggest problems in the world and all of my idols are the most important things in the world until you finally shut up and get out under the stars and remember that this thing is not about you. And when you're under the stars and you're face-to-face with something bigger than you, your problems become small, your idols become low, and you move from the center and you let something else take over. So what is the word that you would use to describe the awe and the majesty and the wonder that you feel when your, grass, when your back is on the grass and your eyes are at the sky? The Bible has a word for this. It's a beautiful word and a profound word and often a word that we don't preach about and talk about enough. But the word I would use to label that experience of being quiet and looking up and seeing something bigger and transcendent is the word holiness. Holiness is a word that we use to measure by own human constructs to define my moral aptitude next to yours. I'm holier than you because I do X, Y, and Z, or I'm holier than you because I don't say this, or I'm holier than that, and I'm holy, and you're not holy, and this is a holy place, and that's not a holy place. And we use this holiness word to define moral aptitude, but the biblical word for holy is so much bigger and robust than that. You think about when Moses encountered the burning bush for the first time. He was both drawn to it and afraid of it at the same time. He had to be curious enough to go next to it. And as he approached it, he heard the voice of the Lord tell him that he needed to take his shoes off. Now, he wasn't told to take his shoes off because it was made in a sweatshop. There's nothing sinful or ethically wrong with the shoes. It's just that the shoes were ritually unclean. He was a shepherd, and he had walked around with mucus and blood and urine and poop and all that kind of stuff, and that kind of stuff just doesn't belong into the holiness of God because the holiness of God is not just about ethics because the holiness of God is not just about you and me. It's about something big. It's not just set apart. The biblical word is otherness or unique or distinct. It's not just set apart, but it's set above. It's not just moral purity, it's divine transcendence. It's that he set apart this world, but he's also set above this world. And he, he doesn't have anything that came before him or anything that came after him, and he doesn't need anybody to make him who he is. And anything that anybody does can't affect who he is or what he's going to do. He's simply, what is the word we would look to to describe that? He's simply holy. His love is holy. His righteousness is holy. His justice is holy. His mercy is holy. It just means other. It means set apart. It means non-affected. It's only affecting, but not affected He's sovereign. It is, it is his holiness. It's his robustness. And so we don't, we don't have language for this because we don't, often don't dare to stand in the presence of this thing and dan, dare to allow ourselves to stand in both that, 
that fear, that trepidation, but also that wonder and awe and that mystery. But it's only subtle and in small times like that that we journey away from the clutter and the noise and the, and the light pollution of our world that we come back to our back to the ground and our eyes to the sky and we encounter what's the word that we would say we encounter, his holiness. So we've been making our way through this passage in 1 Peter that is a, a, a letter that's written to elected exiles. They're scattered through Panchadesha and, and through Galatia and, and they're scattered throughout basically modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor and these things and they're under persecution. Peter says, you have persecution, but you're gonna have more. And he's saying, this is a gift to you. This is a gift to you. Because whether or not you have a physical home home, or you don't have a physical home, the gospel has come to tell you that your identity is not here but somewhere else and that you are not ultimately finding home here, you're finding home in him. And so this is why it's important for all churches, not alone theirs persecuted or unpersecuted and rich church, to hear this message because if we're not careful, whether we're poor or whether we're rich, we, we, we assess our physical and social status on our spiritual one. And both poor and rich Christians alike need to hear this message continually to remember that this place is not our home. We are exiles here. And so one of the things that, um, one of the things that this scripture invites us to see and understand afresh is that the gift of the exile is not a burden but an opportunity. When someone is called from their home, a place that they know, to go to a place that they don't know, an Abraham call, an Isaac call, uh, you know, a, a Jacob call or a Moses call. When somebody's called to leave the place they know or to go to the place that they don't know yet, okay, they're brought into this space of exile. And exile is a gift. It's not a burden. It's a blessing. And one of the reasons why that, like we talked about last week, is that in the exile season, we learn to set down false hopes that we might have real ones. I'm not guaranteed life, living in pursuit of happiness. I'm not guaranteed a spouse. I'm not guaranteed another breath. And so in this exile place, we come to, to see um, the deconstruction of all the things we put our hope in that we might find a real hope, a living hope, a, a hope that is based in the resurrection, a hope that can't be moved, but rather changes, changes the hoper. The hope does not change, the hoper changes. I think somebody called 911 just now. Yeah, it's about to be emergency here. Um, we are shedding our hopes for a real one. We're shedding our homes for a real one. And then ultimately in this passage, we'll see as we're invited out of our home, we shed, we shed our false selves for a real self. In other words, when we are called out of the journey of our home and out into the journey of exile, we encounter holiness for the first time. Did you ever notice how when Abraham is called out of his home, it's finally when he says goodbye to the pagan worshiping days of his life in Ur that he finally opens up to the tree of Monray where he can worship and offer and sacrifice to God where he recognizes his holiness. Did you ever notice that it's not until Jacob leaves his home, running away from his family, that he goes out into the desert, puts his head on the rock, and heaven begins to open? What is it about exile when we are stripped away from the noise pollution and the light pollution that we can finally see the stars for what they really are? We can finally hear the voice in the middle of the echoes. When we don't have other people to rely on, we encounter him face to face. And what will we encounter other than holiness itself? What is it that Moses finds when he, when he gets kicked out of, of, of not only Israel, but of Egypt, and he is in exile in his own land except for the burning bush of holiness? What does Peter find when he leaves his comfort and security to go up the hill with his fellow disciple John to recognize Jesus in transcendence as well as Elijah and as well as Moses in the mountain of transfiguration other than the sheer holiness of God that he might find his own holiness? Exile is not a burden so much as it is a gift. It's an opportunity to see things as they really are, a revelation, an apocalypse, an opportunity to see false homes and false hopes and false selves stripped away that we might be able to be laid bare in front of the only true living God and realize who he is in the first place, that he is holy and that he has called us to be holy. 
And so this is the gift. This is the gift of the exile. I wonder if you have, have ever been called from home before. Have you ever been called to college before, called to plant a church before, called out of something comfortable to go to something unknown? My guess is that at that same exact season and juncture, you also found the Spirit. Maybe you didn't have language for it, calling you to holiness, calling you to something bigger than your little bubble created for you as you grew up. I wonder if there's anybody here, and COVID has been a massive shaking time. Have you noticed this? A massive shaking time for business and religion and Christianity, and really even a deconstruction of where are we even coming from, and that unsettledness, even 5%, psychologists will say, if your home gets shuffled up, will, will very much uh, shake you for, down to your core about what really matters and who really am I and what is really true, and that place where you're laid bare in exile is your opportunity for holiness. It's when the light pollution dims that the stars can shine the brightest and you can encounter him face to face. Not what your mother told you and not what your pastor told you, but what God himself is saying and what will you find except for holiness and therefore your holiness right, in him. And so that is, that is the gift. Have you, have you ever seen the things that you called home, you know, the leaders in your life that maybe fell, right? Or the friends in your life that turned their back on you. You, you, you sensed that shaking and you thought potentially it was, it was a burden. And even if it is a burden, it certainly is a burden in disguise because it's in the moments that we're either thrust out of home or called out of home that we have to reckon with God on our own. And here's voice for the very first time. And the only thing that we will see with our back on the grass and our eyes to the sky is holiness. There's no other word. It is holiness. And this world is, is not holy. Our sandals are not holy. The echoes around us are not holy. Holiness does not come around us or inside of us. Holy comes from only one place. It comes above us. It comes in this, in this place, in this voice that, that meets us as we are set apart to find him, to find his holiness um, in the midst of the echoes. So we're in this passage, if you want to uh, join with me there. Um, and we are um, uh, in 2 Peter. And actually, let me just make sure that I had two different outlines here, make sure that I'm in the right spot. We're in 1 Peter, uh, first, first Peter rather, chapter 1, verse 13. This is what Peter says. He says, he says therefore, Peter speaking, uh, building and amplifying his message on the hope of the resurrection, he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, he says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. So it was sophomore year, and I had uh, a roommate in this dorm, and I got a knock on the door at three in the morning, and it's a drunk guy. He's so drunk. He doesn't know what is going on. But I'm three in the morning, and so like, I'm kind of like not with it either. And he tells me this basic lie that the roommate told him that he was supposed to sleep there tonight, and I should open up the door and let him sleep in there. How many of you guys know that if Kyra was not there, I would have no discernment and no judgment? And this is the proof in the pudding, because at 21, I was like, that's a great idea. Just come on over here, and you can sleep right over here. And so this random stranger drunk guy comes and sleeps over there, over here in this bed, and I come over and sleep over here. And then I wake up, and it's like 8 in the morning, and uh, I'm like, hey, man, are you uh, looking for Ryan? And he was like, Ryan? And I was like, yeah, you know the roommate? How you guys? He's like, I don't know. I've never heard of Ryan in my life before. And where am I? I don't even know who I am anymore. And he picked up his stuff and he just walked out and never seen him again, right? Okay. And so, and, and, so, and so what is it? Okay, so look at the language here. Okay, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, to so set your hope on the grace brought to you in Jesus Christ as obedient children, not to conform to the evil desires you had when you're in ignorance. So the illustration that Peter is using is what else is he saying when he references obedience as sobriety? to speak about disobedience as drunkenness. Like, in other words, what he's saying is, when you look at evil desires of ignorance, he's saying that evil isn't always overt and intentional. Evil is also often ignorant. It's, 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 that, uh, it's, not me, um, it's not me maliciously planning something and doing it. It's me being so asleep and so drunk 
and so out of it and so disoriented that I think I'm doing good, but I'm actually doing evil. This is the possibility for you and I, right? And so um, we were talking beforehand about, um, you know, the church in Afghanistan and things that are going on, and there was a testimony that was shared when we were doing the volunteer meeting earlier, and um, it was on this podcast, and they actually shut it off in the middle of the podcast, like cut the radio waves over there, and uh, it was talking about this one couple. One of them came from America, and one came from the Middle East, and they had gotten married um, as they followed Jesus um, together. And the lady actually had a really cool testimony where her mom had like MS, and she was healed in the name of Jesus, and then she became part of this evangelistic thing. Um, and then uh, he was like one of the um, uh, communicator pe- communication team people, and they met over there over evangelism. And when they got married, they had to make this decision of where to live, to live there or to live here. And so what they did is they, they, they moved and they, and they lived over here in the States until about 2008 when the stock market kind of plummeted and everything went wrong in 2008 in the bubble, right? And they had, had to make the decision, are we going to stay or are we going to go? And she said that in that season, it was so important that the Lord spoke to her directly through a dream, right? And this is what the dream basically was saying. She said, in the dream, um, she said what was going on was there was this lullaby music, this sleepy, uh, just kind of calming, soothing music that as she was trying to wake up, the lullaby would increase. And she said that the, the, she just sensed that the Lord was saying to her so clearly that like the church of the West is under a lullaby, that there's a sleepiness that sets in. And though we're alive in Christ, we're asleep at the wheel, right? So I was driving with, with Rose the other day and we're doing, you know, driver's instruction and we pulled out and this van, it's a work truck, is just swerving off and on the road like this. Right? Have you seen this? It'll be in the middle of the day. It'll just be somebody that's swerving off and on. And I just told Rose, slow down and back off. Like, slow down and back off. This guy, right? And you just think to yourself, like, I'm going to guess that no matter where that guy was at 2 in the morning, I'm, I'm probably sure he didn't wake up, right, to get drunk and put people's lives in danger. I'm just going to go ahead and guess. That wasn't his intention, right? But this is what the scriptures come to tell us, that evil doesn't have to be intentional. It can be ignorant. This is what it's saying, Right? is that I can think, every time when we watch Schindler's List, we think we're Schindler, we don't think we're the Nazis. But most people are not intentionally evil, they're ignorantly evil, right? They think, they think that their lives are about Jesus and their lives are about building the kingdom and they think that their life would be spent on the kingdom of God, right? But, but, but we're drunk to our own arrogance. We don't know how prideful we are. And we, we are not the same people in front of different people. This is what it's saying. Like, potentially, you know, like, if we measured by our own measuring stick, we'd be drunk to measure it. We would not be able to walk the line. Because it's saying that, like, you could think you're doing good, but be ignorant and actually be doing evil. And no one would tell you because you would look at the Joneses and who's next door to you to find holiness and not the one who's holy. And we would sit in an echo chamber, and I could convince you, and you can convince me, right, that we are walking in the image of Jesus and, and listen to all the blind and all the deaf people talking to us and never listen to the holiness of God. It's very possible to be evil and ignorant at the same time. That's a scary concept, right? And so, so what it's saying here is that there's this call out and the gift of the exile is to finally hear his voice for what it is. Not mitigated, not interpreted, not softened, not dampened, right? But the clairvoyant, clear, holy picture of who Jesus is When it is that we're exiled out from under these places, there is an opportunity, a chance that we might hear his voice in turn. Because we're the the best at deceiving ourselves and making ourselves drunk. We're the best at creating our own narrative. I talk all the time, guys. I talk all the time. When I'm out under the sky, I'm quiet. I'm small and he's big. But when I go back to work, I'm a big deal. I talk all the time. And I want you to know me. And I want you to know how much I know, right? 
And I say I follow Jesus, right? And I want to follow Jesus. And at, at times of clairvoyance, I see who Jesus is. But for the most part, I'm drunk and asleep. That's what the scripture is saying. There is a lot of our life that we are not soberly thinking and we are using the echoes of this world rather than the holiness of his voice to define what's right and wrong. And the scripture is saying, there might be a few Schindlers, but most, most are not. And, and, and we are prone to redefine good and evil on our own terms. And so there's only one place. There's only one place. So this is what he says. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace he bought for you in Jesus Christ, revealed in his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. That's the thing. It's like, when I was a kid, I hated my name. Oliver is such a stupid name. I wish my name was Brad. Pass me the rock, Oliver. It's like not tough enough, you know? I didn't want, like my dad would come, the shorts would be too short. I'd be like, dad, don't embarrass me, you know? I just didn't want to stand out. That's the power of conforming. You don't think peer pressure just ends when you turn 26. Conformity. Conformity. Because it's in the Kool-Aid. Why? Why are we not sober? Why are we continually telling things telling ourselves things are holy when they're not? Why are we continually redefining good and evil on our own terms? Why are we ignorantly evil, <laughs> is the question. And he's saying, because we conform. We listen to the echo and not the voice. But, but if, you, if you have grace in your life, and if he's called you out for a moment to be alone with him and to hear his voice, here's what you're going to hear. That he's holy. That up there, is what he came to bring down here. That the, that the observation is really an invitation to be holy as he is. It's to be captivated and inspired and given only to that place, to drown out echoes, to hear the solitary voice of the one that speaks. And he says, that voice is the one that defines right and wrong down here and no one else. And if he says one thing and everyone else says something else, he's telling the truth and everyone else is lying. And it's saying, I'm the one who's holy and you're called to be holy as I'm holy. So be holy and all that you do, for it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Now notice that the trail of the, of the logic there and the breakdown of the passage doesn't say to do holy things, then be a holy person, and, and then finally see a holy God. That is not what it says. Look at it again, right? But just as he who called you is holy starts with God, holiness belongs to God, nobody's holy without God, and he's the one who writes the dictionary. You can't just go and compete with him for holiness. Holiness has a one-source monopoly, and God is the only one that has holiness in the first place, even if he shares it with others. But just as he is holy, be holy in all that you do. So notice the, the transaction of legalism says, if I do holy things, I will become a holy person, and if I become a holy enough person, then I'll be able to see a holy God and stand in his presence. But that's the exact opposite of what Peter's saying. Peter's saying is that we will encounter somehow the holy God, and like the sun, it's both alluring and devastating, and it could burn us up. But somehow the holiness, instead of killing us, will somehow save us. And his holiness will somehow become my holiness. So seeing results in being, and being then will result in doing. But just as he called you is holy, so holy, be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Have you ever seen a kid, they don't want to play with the toys, they want your phone, they, don't, they want to get into the chainsaw. They don't want to play with their Teletubbies, right? They want to get into your stuff. And there's a little girl, and she gets into the closet, and she puts on the high heels, and she puts on the pearls, and she puts on the makeup, and she puts on the dress, and she doesn't want to wear her clothes and play with her toys because she wants to dress like mom. Have you ever seen a son before who wants to get into his father's stuff, the baseball cards, the mitts, you know, the basketball stuff, the shoes? It's, it's the son seeing the image of the father and wanting to be like the father. This is exactly what the narrative is that the, the theology that Peter is, 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 is lining up here 
is that holiness is not something to do, it is something to be. And, there, and, and, and more than that, it's not just something to do and something to be, but someone who is and oversees and is over all things. He is holy, and because we are made to be images only of him, we become holy in his presence, and by seeing him, we will become like him. And by being like him, we will, un, un, we will, we will inevitably do things he does. And so just look at some of this language. Let's read a couple verses. They're scattered here. Pay attention to the familial language of holiness. Holiness is not religious language. It's, it's, it's relational language. Holiness is not about doing something. It's about being made into someone, by someone. It's relational. Holiness cannot be a legal chart. It cannot be a list. Holiness has to be an identity. So, for example, verse 23, chapter 2, uh, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So notice that. You're born again. You were born of a different kind of a DNA strand through a living, enduring word of God. He can't talk about holiness without relationship. As obedient children, this isn't about pupils, students, managers, soldiers. This is about sons. As obedient children, you now have a different kind of a DNA. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. For you know that it was with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or ransomed from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors, your lowercase fathers. So holiness is not transactional or even legal. Holiness is relational. And so what is it about kids that when you give them a space in the yard and a little bit of grass and enough time away from screens, they don't have to consume to have joy. They know how to experience wonder and imagination. What is it about kids that can be content? And what is it about adults that in contrast to kids' contentness have so much pretense? Why is it that adults always need to run for office? Why is it that adults always need a false self? Why do adults need to have a burger and a beer to rest? Why do adults become so restless in the open sky, right? Other than the fact that we've lost sight and we've become like our our ancestors, become ignorant in our emptiness, and we've forgotten about our holiness. You see, holiness is, is not actually as it talks about a child getting raised up. Do you see the language of you're a child, you were born of this, and now you're born of this, and now you're getting from milk to meat, you're raised up into this other path, you're literally reborn into new identity. Holiness is relational, and holiness, therefore, is not actually trying to make you less human, but more. Holiness is not religious because it's not trying to make you cry or laugh less, but cry and laugh more. Holiness is not trying to make you feel less, but feel more. Holiness is not trying to, you know, make you more in your head than in your heart. Holiness is not, holiness is not about a rigidity of, of staying within certain bounds. Holiness is not the absence of sin. It's the fullness of God. It's the presence of God. And so what does Jesus say, right, except for the losing of life is not really losing life in the first place, but finding it again. Can you have a Saturday without a burger and a beer and enjoy holiness? Can you, can you lay on your back and look at the stars, right? And experience enoughness. Or do you have to go do something else or be something else or change something else in order to go and find and make your own holiness? To see, the reality is, is that we're all images and we're all meant to image somebody. We are not our own image. And that's why we buy Michael Jordan shoes and buy Tiger Woods golf clubs and dress up like celebrities and do whatever else that we do, right? Because we are made to be images and we're all trying to be holy like someone, but he's, this, he's the one who says he's the, he's the only monopoly on holiness. And so holiness is not an invitation to be fearfully encapsulated by rules and regulations, but an opportunity to be released into who you were called to be at the very beginning. 
Holiness is not losing your life. It's actually finding it for the first time. Holiness is not a burden. It's a gift. And so the only reason why we wouldn't embrace holiness is because we're drunk. And we redefined what holiness is on our own terms. And we think that holiness is emptiness. We think that holiness is boredom. We think that holiness is, a, you know, a nervous, anxious, long list of no's, short list of yeses. We think it's the escape of humanity. We think it's to become divine and less human. We think it's to cry less and to, and to laugh less and to enjoy less. And, and it's the exact opposite. Do you see how the drunkenness catches in? Our life is emptiness. He is the fullness of all joy and he has all righteousness, peace, and joy. And he's never known a day, right, without the longings of our heart. And so we sit here in this drunkenness and stupor and we're literally an inverted plane that calls him empty and ignorant and evil. And it's not until his son gets a hold of us that we recognize what holiness really is and we actually find ourselves comfortable in our own skin again. Our old ways were empty and evil and arrogant, not the other way around. And so I love in um, Brendan Manning's book, uh, he's the guy that wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel and he, he walked through a period of addiction with alcohol and he's a Franciscan priest and he's this big speaker. And, and even after 20 years of ministry, he um, was called to a 20-day silent retreat. I mean, could you imagine going up to a hill and not talking to anybody and just being encountered with the darkness and the maybe scariness and the bigness of God? Man, what would he talk about? What would he not talk about to you? What would, what would be able to be hidden from him in that place when there's nobody to impress and there's nobody to run from and there's nobody to blame? It's just you before the Lord. What are you gonna experience other than the goodness of God, right? The holiness of God. And this is what his memoir says, that the great divorce, this is what he discovered after 20 years of ministry, illustrating, prophesying, preaching the gospel to other people. This is what he realized about his own soul, that none of that stuff could ever create real holiness in him. He, was, he, he had none of the things of God as he tried to manifest them on his own, except for the grace of God. This is what he says, that the great divorce, he realized in his retreat, was between my head and my heart. And I had endured throughout my ministry this gap. For 18 years, I proclaimed the good news of God's passionate unconditional love, utterly convicted, but in my head and not really feeling it in my heart. I never felt loved. This is Brandon Manning's testimony. And it's probably the testimony of any of us. If we went away for 20 days and silently just looked at him, we would realize of how much of our life is a false holiness. How much of our life is functional alcoholism. It's me doing something that's 90% working. And it's good enough because nobody calls me on it. And in the false holiness we hold on to, and in the noise and the continual busyness and false pretense, we hide ourselves quite, quite vividly, right, and quite um, honestly and earnestly from the holiness of God. We would be afraid of what we would find there. But Peter says we should not be afraid of holiness because holiness is not just something to do. It's who we are. We are holy in Christ through Jesus. And so holiness in Jesus is a completely different ballgame. The same holiness that would burn us up without Jesus is now is making us and forging us and rescuing us in his name to make us who we were always called to be. So because holiness is not a list of rules to follow, but an identity to step into, you'll notice that Peter's doctrine does not line up rules, but tells a story. If I want to infer to you a step-by-step a mechanism for how to become steps a holier person, then I would just give you a list of rules. But if holiness is an identity, I'd want to tell you a story. I'd want to tell you who you were, and I'd want to tell you where you're from. And this is what the Father says over us. Listen to what it says in verse 17. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, aka the Father's the only one who's not drunk, he's the only one who's impartial, and his light shines and hits every dark space, and there's nowhere to run and no one to impress, the holiness of God confronts us right there. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. 
For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You see the hope changes here. I'm not afraid of holiness now because I have a hope. What does the hope say? For you know that it's not with perishable things such as ransom or silver or gold that you were redeemed. Another word there in the Greek is ransomed. You were bought one for one, his life for yours. You were ransomed from the empty way of life handed down from you from your lowercase f fathers, your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, you were ransomed, a lamb without blemish or defect. This is Levitical language right here of the atoning lamb that lived as us and died for us so that we could live as him. This is the gospel. Knew no sin. He became sinner on our behalf that we become the righteousness of God. Verse 20, he was chosen before the creation of the world for that exact purpose, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God and, you, and he raised, you, raised him up from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. So because it's, holiness is not something to do, but something to be, he doesn't give you a list. He tells you a story. And the story basically goes like this. The world thinks it's the good guy while God's the bad guy. The world thinks it's sober while God's misinformed. And the world therefore thinks that we are the source of everything good in this world. And we built it with our own two hands. And we can protect ourselves and make ourselves. And as long as I spin it on Twitter just, to, just right, then who I say that I am is who I am. And I can hide and I can run and I can redefine good and evil on my own terms and there is no answering or reckoning or any of these things, right? Because I'm the guy that's the good guy and he's the bad guy. And my approach in the gospel then is trying to convince that he's a little bit nicer of a guy than you might think him to be. But God is saying I'm way holier than that. And any good or justice or mercy that's ever happened to me has come from me and not from you. And in your stupor, you've been misinformed and you're walking around and that evil is not just a problem you're trying to fix sociologically, it's a prison is the evil that has come above you, around you, and inside of you. You are trapped. You are, not just, you are not just confronted by evil. You are a slave to it, right, in your sin. That's, that's the picture there. And so you don't just need a friend. You need a Messiah. You need somebody to literally pay the price for an exchange. The price of one son for the freedom of another. That's the only way to be free. That is the only way out of this drunkenness, out of this prison, okay? And so he's saying there is a ransom that was made, and he, he lived as us and died as us, so that we could live as him, okay? And now, because of that, because that ransom was so permanent and so mighty and so worthy, worth, worthy and, and, and worth so much, okay, it completely changes the transaction of what happens to me when I step into holiness. Pay attention to Isaiah chapter 6. You guys know this passage, this is Isaiah in front of when King Isaiah died in the courts of heaven, talking directly to God. Woe is me. This is his answer. He's flying his back. He's looking at this guy. He's got one word. Woe. Woe is me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim, who is not just a little baby flyer, homework card person, flies over uh, to me with a live coal in his hand, which he has taken with tongs from the altar. It's so hot, the holiness of God is so hot, he's carrying it with barbecue tongs. Verse 7, with it, he touched my mouth, and he said, see, it's touched your lips, but instead of the holiness of God touching you, and killing you, the holiness of God has cleansed you. He says, the holiness of God has touched you, and now somehow, because of some propitiation miracle, because of some replacement miracle, now your guilt is taken away. The sin that you had before a holy God doesn't kill you now. The sin that you had before a holy God is absolved. It's atoned for. And now, you standing before the holy God doesn't only not kill you, it saves you, and it makes you holy. What has happened? What is the transaction 
that has happened here. It goes on to say, right? Verse 21, back to the first Peter. It's through him you believed in God and he was raised from the dead and glorified him so that you have your faith and hope in God. And what is that hope? Other than the same resurrection spirit that resurrected on Easter morning now resides and lives in us. And we, we step into a new relationship with holiness where we're not fearful of holiness anymore, but rather we're drawn to it. It was a time, right, when you were a little kid and they had to tell you, at least for me, three different times, don't look at the sun. You remember that? What would happen? You look at the sun, your eyeballs would just burn out, right? That's the holiness of God. It's a picture of the holiness to not look at the sun. But not to get too preachy with you or whatever, right, is that the calling here is to look at the most holy thing we've ever seen on this earth, and that is to Jesus, to look at the sun. And now when we look at the sun, instead of my sinfulness imparting onto him and making righteousness sinful, now his righteousness imparts to me and makes my sin righteous. And the Holy Spirit then resides in me and it causes all the fire and all the tests and all the trials and all the persecution, all the homelessness and all the problems that I endure in my life, the things that would have killed me, the holiness of God confronts me and now saves me for the very first time. What is happening other than the fires of tribulation are burning away my false self to, to restore and to redeem and ransom and rescue my true self again, that I might be a child in him again. So what is the tension that we're feeling when we're being called away from home, that tension, that, that girding, is a, is a pressure really between two selves, the false self and the real self. This is what he's saying, is that ultimately you are not only called to do holy things and be holy, you are called holy. You are already holy. This is what, what Peter is saying. And so the Lord, the Holy Spirit, will not be satisfied with your happiness at the expense of holiness. And so that, that restlessness that we feel of, of, of agitation and we, we, we have this groaning and longing, that thing is not an accident, it's on purpose, and that thing has been put inside of us because of the Holy Spirit, and he is not allowing us to be a, a, a successful sinner. He is agitating us and moving and, and correcting us and, 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 and drawing us towards his truth, right, until all of my unholiness is burned away and I can finally bear the image of the Son, the one I was created to be, because holiness is not about becoming less human, it's about becoming more. It's not a burden, it is a gift, and he's not come to hurt us but to save us. And these persecution moments, these trials are here to help us. COVID is here to shake away false hope. If it wasn't for Jesus, COVID would be doomed to us. But because of Jesus, it's our hope. It's shaking away the false things that we might be finally free again, that we might be sober again, that we might be awake again and alive again fully because we're not only called to be holy, we're told that we already are. Chapter 10, verse 9, but you are, not will be, are are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. If you had uh, the rights to the Charlotte Hornets basketball team, right, and it's back in 1984, and uh, Michael Jordan got cut from his team twice, and he never made the team, and he never went and shot the shot at UNC, and you never had access, you know, to, and nobody knew who Michael Jordan is, and Hakeem Olajuwon's going crazy, and whatever, Clyde Dressler, and he's like up for the grabs, and they go up into the thing, right, and you have the authority as the general manager of the Charlotte Hornets, I'm going to go ahead and guess, right, and without being a basketball expert, because some of you guys don't know who Hakeem Olajuwon is, right, is that you wouldn't pick either of those guys, you'd pick Michael Jordan, even if he didn't show you any merit for his picking, because he's Michael Jordan, right, you know who the dude is, right, so what we're seeing here is that God, in his and his uh, sovereignty and his foreknowledge knows already who you are and knows ahead of time, even when you act out of character, who you really are. And because of the Holy Spirit's deposit on your life, he already knows even when you are not acting holy, you are holy. You are holy and blameless, Colossians 1 said, in his sight. 
which means that you're not only considered holy, but you're destined for holiness. You have a trajectory of your life going only up and into one direction, and there's, and there's ups and downs and tests and trials, but ultimately, the, the predestiny of who you are is headed towards ultimate holiness. We will ultimately only follow and become under the image of the only true image of God because we were made not to be like Michael Jordan or be like anybody else, but to be like him, and he is making unsuccessful sinners in, in doing anything less. He is not going to allow our happiness to get in the way of our holiness. And so here it is. This is what we see as what the real picture of holiness is. It says in uh, verse 22, as we kind of come here to the landing point, it says, look, now that you've been made holy, now that you've been purified, now pay attention to this. This is what this looks like. It doesn't mean longer dresses, you know, and, you know, you are cussing less or whatever. I'm sure there's different expressions of what holiness looks like in different places, right? But the core of holiness is this, is that you obey truth. This is what holiness is. It is not a list of things not to do, but a list of things to follow, or at least a relationship to live into, and says, and so this is what the determining uh, expression of holiness is. He says, you will have and this is a long sentence, but it's a beautiful one. We might soak it in. Sincere love for one another. Like, there's a kind of love that just runs for office. Hey, man, good to see you, man. Oh, awesome, how's the kid? Blah, 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 blah. You know, like, there is a, a false love that he's saying, if you're going to be holy, has to get burned away for real love. How many of you guys want some real love? How many of you guys want to be a part of, of a small group with real love? How many of you guys want to be a part of a church with real love? Where, like, lay down your life love, not like happy gap, da, 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 like you, follow you. It's like, Real love. Holiness has come to give love, and love does not exist except that it belongs to holiness, right? And everyone wants love, but it's bankrupt without holiness itself. So he says, you're going to have a sincere love, you're going to love deeply, and you're going to love from the bottom of your heart. Jesus says, yeah, you didn't cheat on the person, but you undressed everybody on the way to Publix with your eyes anyways. So what's the difference if you think about it or if you do it? It doesn't matter, because nobody's holy but me. And I'm not come to judge you with my holiness, I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to allow you to look at the sun for the first time because the sun used to come, you know, to, to, to you know, God used to, used to in, in his holiness as we came before him, judge us and punish us. But now we come before the sun, we have nothing to hide and everything to gain and all the hope in the world is ours because his holiness doesn't kill us, it saves us. So this, this is the, the imperative that he's, that he's telling us. Holiness is gonna roll out into deep love that this world desires. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. That's all he wants to do is to bring the thing. This is what every street corner is dying for. This is what all your friends are asking for. I'm looking for real love. I'm looking for real, real shepherding, for real care, for real family, right? That's what everybody's looking for. And what the scriptures is telling us is that the world is not lacking in a definition of love. It's lacking in a definition of holiness. Because love cannot exist without actual holiness. Love, in verse 22, is only the downspout of what holiness actually is. No one, love without holiness is, is, a, um, is a contradiction in terms. You guys have seen uh, the, the notebook before, and the notebook, of course, is famous because it shows the end along with the beginning. Most of the time, can't hardly wait, or whatever it is, you know, how to lose a guy in 10 days. They fall in love, and uh, you, uh, credits roll, and the popcorn goes, and you're like, they're never gonna make it, right? Because they have the first little 30 days of the relationship, but you never see the end. But the notebook is really charming because you see the end. Like, we wanna see the end because so many relationships have the beginning, but they don't have the end. What the scripture is saying is about love is, is, is probably if you really broke it down and, and studied it, if anybody endures to the end with love, the undergirding and the foundation of it is holiness. There's no such thing as love without holiness. This world is crying and can define love and point out other fingers why there isn't love, but the reason why we don't experience love is because we don't know holiness. And this is what Hebrews 12 says in verse 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so as we consider the identity of holiness is just something to do, but some, someone to be like, 
We can't love the world. We can't love the world as Jesus commands us without holiness. We can't love differently without living differently. And so there's a beautiful, beautiful invitation for us as we finally would see holiness put in its correct perspective. Holiness is the deep love of Jesus. It's to love God and to love neighbor fully. And he's not trying to keep us away from the good life. He's trying to deliver us into it for the very first time, to experience deep love and real love and actual gospel-centered love. And so it closes up with this little poem. Peter says, For all people are like grass, and all glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You guys have probably seen some of these interviews of people on their deathbed, and what are people talking about when their grass is fading away as they're dying out? They, They say things like this. They say things like, I wish I would have spent more time at home than the office. They say things like, I wish I would have been not as afraid to go out and take risks. I wish I would have dialed down the opinions of other people to really follow what, I'm, what I felt like I was supposed to be doing. And what is that except by the end of time, right, when people fade away as flowers and grass always do, they realize that their life wasn't given to be their own holiness, but to follow something else. What they're longing for on their deathbed is a kind of holiness to be different, come what may, and to be defined by a voice and not an echo, to define holiness not by what's around me, but by what's Above me, above me. And so here it is the choice that he says. Here is then the indicative of what we might do with a truth like this that he is holy and he's called us to be holy. Verse 2 Therefore, rid yourselves of malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy, and slander of every kind. And he says, Instead of being drunk, crave spiritual milk like newborn babies. Be filled with the Spirit. This word here isn't even like, go read more Bible. This is literally a taste and see, right? This is the actual communion and fellowship with God. Communion with his holiness through Jesus that is making us holy. He says, like newborn babies crave the spiritual substance. There's not even really a word to to leverage it in interpretation. So that by it, you may grow up in salvation. You won't be like a grass that dies out, but you will be a shoot that rises up and lives on into perpetuity through the salvation. You'll be raised up and be re-raised by God, not by the lowercase father, but by the capital father. Now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so ultimately, in closing, that holiness um, is a gift and it's not a burden. And you might be in a spot right now where everything is upside down. And all the things that you put your, your comfort in and your hope in are getting shaken like never before. And maybe the scripture in First Peter is telling us, maybe that's not an accident. Maybe that's on purpose. Maybe, maybe God is, as C.S. Lewis says, the hound of heaven. And he is relentless in exchanging your happiness sometimes for the sake of holiness, because holiness is not a burden but a gift, and it is a discovery into who we were created to be in the first place. And so this invitation through the blood of Jesus and through the sanctification of the Spirit is an opportunity to look at what we could never look at before. We could only look at the vastness and the depth and of the who we were created to be. That message of Jesus and the one that came to earth could only condemn us, because it, Jesus on this earth shows us who we should have been. And when we come to that place and reckon with holiness, we are going to be confronted with, with the person that our, that our husband should have experienced and the person that our wife and our church should experience. We're going to experience that, the holiness unveiled. And, he, and he's saying, instead of fear now, we have hope because we've been ransomed and we have his likeness inside of us, a deposit that even when we don't look like Michael Jordan, we are made to be holy. We are made to reflect only one, one image. Jesus was showing us who we're becoming. Jesus is our future. He is who we are becoming, and that is why all the things in your life are coming through, whether it be for pain or sorrow or shame, so that you might be made to look like him, because holiness is not about being better than them, it's being like him.
And so this is the uh, three questions I have for us when you consider in your groups and with your, with your prayer partner, with your spouse. It's just this question about considering holiness. Where might you, this is my question, lay down your holiness for his? Where might you lay down what you heard from your church and what you see from worship videos and what you see from everybody else that has an opinion, right? Their echo is not the voice. They're replicas. They're, they're, they're images, but they're not the image, right? And so, so what does it look like to look at him in the face when he says, leave all you have and sell everything and, and give to the poor? When he says, the meek inherit the earth, when he says, turn the other cheek, when he says, forgive, you know, seven times 77, he's not giving you that for you to reinterpret on your own terms. He's giving you that to be the voice in the echoes, to look at him fully. The very voice that used to condemn us is now saving, saving us because his image is our future. He is the picture of the first, not the last, of the images that are being created by this resurrection hope, by the power of the resurrection spirit. And so looking at him is taking a look at our future. He is our vision. He is our goal. He is our measurement. He is the only picture of holiness. And so then that place, not to rush and do something, but to be someone, to recognize that you are part of his family and, and you can worship and celebrate the fact that, that for a day you wore your mom's high heels and you put on your dad's blazer, but ultimately that was just a shadow of the ultimate picture of who you become to be. Jesus is not just your Messiah, he's your model. He's expressing an example of how we are living on this earth. And he's not just for us to be fans, but followers, but to be like him. And so Dallas Willard's quote, I think it's so great. But the question we might ask every day then, in light of that holiness, to be holy and do holiness with everything that we do, not what does the Joneses do or what I think I should do or what I was doing five years ago, but compared to Jesus, looking at him, doing life with Jesus and like Jesus and for Jesus, the question would become, what would Jesus do right now if he had my life? If he had my wife, if he had my kids, if he had my job, if he had my problems, if he had my opportunities, I'm not going to look to my neighbor. I'm not going to look around me, and I'm not going to look inside of me. I'm looking only upwards. I'm only looking at him. He is, the invis- he is the image of the invisible God. He is the only pure picture of what holiness is, and I'm not going to listen to voice instead of echoes. I'm not going to listen to darkness when I see brightness ahead of me. When my back's on the floor and my eyes are at the sky, I'm not going to say much. I'm going to be small. I'm not going to run for campaigns. I'm not going to tell people how awesome I am. I'm not interested in telling everybody what I've done and what I've accomplished and what I have because I have nothing of worth except for him. Christ and Christ crucified. I'm only going to boast of my weakness because I'm only a trophy of grace. And when I finally see my story, I finally see who I am. And me before God is my only chance at being holy in this place. It is looking at him, seeing him for who he is. To see him with Jesus is to be like him and to be like him is to do as he would. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.